Our scripture reading this morning is in the book of Amos, as Gentile scholars who are sophisticated say, and certainly rabbis, Amos. We're going to read Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then a section from chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And this earthquake is mentioned in Zechariah, and there's some historical evidence for it, but also maybe a reference to a nature theophany of the lion coming from Zion. Verse 2, and he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. And for the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, what we find here is seven oracles to seven different nations with this formula for three sins and even four, I will do thus and thus, thus saith the Lord. That just simply means for a lot of sin. So there's the sin is mentioned and then the judgment. And so you can hear the Israelites cheering Amos on. That's right, buddy. You go for it. You preach it to those pagan nations, Amos. Then look at chapter 4. Let's even let Judah have her shot from Amos. For thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lives have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Again now, seven nations and even the southern kingdom and the Israelites are saying, that's right, sick them, Amos. But verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor in the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's stand together.
you so much. You may be seated. You must be thinking to yourselves, my goodness, such bleak reading from the Torah, such a harsh reading from a book of Amos. But let me remind you, for about 200 years, the church had the following, the regula fida, the rule of faith, oral tradition, baptismal creeds, nascent church creeds, and the Old Testament. We have Scripture, the Bible, 66 canonical books, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament, a work of literature, a work of history, and a work of theology. Theologically, the Scriptures claim for themselves divine inspiration. All Scripture is God-breathed. But yet there was a human component, as we saw in 2 Peter. Holy men of God spake as they were born along by the Spirit of God. The prophetic word isn't a matter of private interpretation. But how do we know? How do we know these books are what they claim to be? Well, historical reasoning and evidences will take us so far, and they're helpful. But I like what Calvin says, and listen to this carefully. When he was asked to the question, how shall we be persuaded that Scripture came from God, he said this, it is just the same as if we were asked, how shall we learn to distinguish light from darkness, white from black, and sweet from bitter? He went on to say, Scripture bears upon the face of it as clear evidence of its truth, as do white and black their color, and sweet and bitter of their taste. But there's another self-evident constituent part of the Bible, this book we call the Word of God. It is a corpus of literature. It is a corpus of ancient Near Eastern literature. It is not an encyclopedia. It isn't a textbook on any subject. It is a religious book. It is a book of a covenant, a covenant that extends from Eden to Noah, from Noah to Moses, from Moses to David, and from David to Jesus. It's a covenantal religious book. And from all of their ultimate fulfillment in this Jesus and the new covenant, it is a book that is structured around a simple project, a simple logic of creation and fall and redemption with this overarching message that God is building a kingdom of people for his glory. For our literary purposes this morning, we will be looking at the prophet Amos, a text that is nearly three millennia old. Finally, the Bible is a theological book. The Bible is a literary book. But it's also a book comprised of history. That story of redemption I just mentioned is told with a focus on God's chosen people, ancient Israel. And Ed read part of their scriptures this morning. It's not a comprehensive history. It is a selective, redemptive history. Because all historical writing, by definition, is selective. Literature, history, and theology. And that brings me to another important question. How do we understand these prophets and prophecy? When you think about prophecy and when you think about the prophets, what comes to your mind? 
Wild fanatics dressed in strange clothes, maybe like Elijah or John the Baptist. Old men gazing into crystal balls, predicting the future. A bizarre group of individuals who somehow serve God in very strange ways that we don't quite understand. None of these comports with the biblical evidence. There are three terms in the Old Testament for prophet. Kose and roe, which means basically to see. Sometimes they're called seers. Navi, that is the called one. And we can also think of prophets as spokesmen from God or a mouthpiece of God. And the best illustration I can give you this is found in Exodus chapter 6. Listen carefully. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, 29, uh, I'm sorry, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why should Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your navi, your prophet, your mouthpiece. So rather than think of these guys as some bizarre guys who are looking into a crystal ball, always predicting the future that is future to them, future to the church, and then future to us today, think of them in the following way, and I think this will be helpful. These prophets are covenant enforcers. They are covenant prosecutors. They are using the Word of God, text like Pastor Ed read this morning, and taking those texts and applying them to the audience of their day. They are covenant standard bearers. We should think of them more as preachers and foretellers, not as forth. I'm sorry, as foretellers, as proclaimers, not as foretellers in the future. Now, certainly, it's, it's, it's certain. They made predictions, for example, about the judgment of Yahweh in the form of foreign invaders or crop failures like Ed read or barrenness of the womb. They made those kinds of predictions based on, again, the covenant, based on prior Scripture. So if you see a futuristic proclamation in a prophetic book, think first of all of their immediate future, like could be tomorrow, the next day, or a few years later. Then think of the Messianic age. Think of Jesus. And then think of the early church before we ever start thinking about something that might be in the future to us. So I guess you can kind of think of this kind of lengthy introduction as a way to help you read the scripture. And by the way, let me say this. Not in my notes, but if I, can, if I can cause you to leave today and you want to go home and read your Bible or I can help you read a prophetic book more competently, then I've done my job. That's part of my hope. Now, what about the literary background of Amos? Here's what's important for us to understand about these prophets. They are not written in chronological order. By that I mean they are not, the books themselves are not structured chronologically. They are structured and stitched together thematically. And that's one of the biggest challenges we face reading these prophetic books. You have to read them biblically, theologically, instead of 
some sort of categories superimposed upon them systematically. And so they have a, these marvelous literary devices that stitch these themes together in conventional ways to the ancient Near East that's just foreign to us. It's hard. It's really, really difficult. Listen to what David Dorsey said in his book on the uh, literary structure of the Old Testament. He writes, Amos is a masterpiece of rhetorical skill and is carefully and effectively structured. There are numerous rhetorical devices, for example, the three sins, even four trope. There are instances of puns or wordplay, beautiful Hebrew poetry. Let me just say here, much of the prophetic corpus is in poetry. Look at any Bible that has indentations in it. Look, for example, through the book of Isaiah. A great portion of Isaiah is poetry. That even makes it more complex. The example of the brilliant rhetorical hook that Amos uses in chapter 1 and 2 where he judges these nations and judges Judah and Israel thinks they're going to get out scot-free and then bam, he hits Israel. It's a beautiful example. There's also a striking number of seven occurrences in the book of Amos. Uh, Dorsey counts over 20. Let me give you an example of those. But these are meaningful. They, they, they mean something. Seven oracles against Israel's seven neighbors, I've said. Seven clauses depicting Israel's sins. Seven clauses depicting the inescapability of punishment. Seven rhetorical questions. Seventy empty ritual activities of Israel. Seven verbs depicting the sins of the wealthy. That's very important. Seven things the wealthy do. That's very important. Seven plagues and seven good things Yahweh will do for Israel into the future. The Bible is a literary book, it's a historical book, and it's a theological book. And that brings me to a little bit about the historical background of Amos himself and his book. Amos was a sheep herder, a nogay, a different word used in the Old Testament than for your typical shepherd. Some have suggested that Amos was a wealthy shepherd, that he was sort of an entrepreneurial business type fellow. He was from the south of Judah, five or six miles down south. But he was also a tender and dresser of sycamore figs. That means he uh, took an instrument and sort of plucked those or pierced those figs at a certain time of year so that they would, they would ripen. He even says, But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against, the, uh, against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. So God took this simple shepherd boy, not trained, and sent him to prophesy. Although his home was near Judah, he was sent to announce God's kingdom, God's uh, judgment to the northern kingdom. He probably ministered for the most part at Bethel. Sanctuary in the north, Israel's uh, main religious sanctuary, where the upper echelons of the northern kingdom worship. But here's the bottom line. Forget all that. Remember this. Amos was the epitome of an outsider. Amos was not part of the religious establishment. Amos was not part of the temple order. He was a farm boy. He was an ultimate outsider. 
And that gave him credibility, ladies and gentlemen. But his ultimate authority came from the Lord. The time period, the 8th century, about 750 B.C., when he prophesied in the northern kingdom, it was a period of relative peace and prosperity. It was prior to any threats by the Assyrian. Ultimately, the Assyrians would come and destroy the northern kingdom in 721 B.C., and then finally the Babylons in 701 B.C., but again, this was a, a time period of relatively uh, relative prosperity and peace. So let's do this. Let's step back for just a moment. Because if we jump into the middle of a hard text, kind of out of historical context, it's going to be harder for it. Let's just do this real quickly. Let me give you the 50,000 foot, give you a chance to breathe, history of Israel. Just some high points, all right? So, around 2100 B.C., Abram's called from Ur of the Chaldees, okay? Joseph goes down into Egypt about, I don't know, 1750, 1780. And around 1500, Moses comes on the scene. The Exodus, about 1446 B.C., right? About 1300 to 1200, the Israelites are in the land of Canaan. It's the ages of the judges. 1050 to 1010, the Israelites establish a kingdom, first under Saul, then under David, and then under Solomon. In 970, Solomon becomes king. He builds a temple in Jerusalem. In 931, Solomon dies. Israel divides into two kingdoms, 931. Then about 200 years later is when Amos comes on the scene. Does that help? So you get a little bit of historical context. Again, it was a, a, a peaceful period. It was a, pros, uh, it was a prosperous historical period as well. Now, let me share with you just a little bit of the theological background of, of uh, Amos. And that's why I had, re I had read those texts. Um, what Amos is doing, what he's saying, is not willy-nilly. It's not de novo. It's not out of nowhere. He is holding forth the theology of text like Pastor Ed read this morning. Blessings if you do X and cursings if you do Y. As a matter of fact, often, often Amos acknowledges that covenantal and theological heritage. Listen to two examples of what he says. It was I, speaking of Yahweh, who brought you up out of Egypt and destroyed the Amorite. There's his covenantal awareness. Chapter 3 and verse 2. You only, Israel, have I known in all the earth. And so Amos stands on a long prophetic tradition. He stands on the shoulders of those who went before him. Joshua, Samuel, David, Nathan, Elijah, Elisha, Ahijah, Azariah, the man of God. Those prophets prophesied to whom? Kings, leaders. These 8th century prophets like Amos are prophesying and taking their message, the message of the covenant, enforcing that covenant not with the religious uppity-ups, but with the people themselves. That's the difference. So those are some uh, high-level concerns that hopefully will help us understand 
the Old Testament a little bit better. Let me just review them. The tripart nature of Scripture, literature, history, theology. The nature of prophets and prophecy, covenant enforcers. The literary highlights of Amos. It's sophisticated. It's structured. The historical setting of Amos. Peace and prosperity. Amos's theology. It's covenant theology. It's retribution theology. He is... He is assaulting them like a Philadelphia lawyer and prosecuting them with a covenant lawsuit. It's called a RIV, R-I-B, but pronounced R-I-V. Now, that's a lengthy introduction. I know that. Now, let's get to the text of Amos. All I want to do this morning is sample a few of the themes that concern him. And the question is this. Why is Amos... Why is he telling us that the lion is roaring from Zion? Simply put, God in Amos is not so much outraged over crimes like murder and rape. God is very displeased with violations of social morality. Crimes prevalent in most any society, in most any era, including our own. Taking bribes. Improper weights and balances. Lack of charity to the poor. Indifference to the plight of the debtor. These, according to Yahweh, are unacceptable. What God requires is morality among community participants and not merely cultic worship. And I don't use cultic in the sense of cults, but the activities, the religious activities that go on. The center of worship. Especially worship that is empty, hollow, hypocritical and perverse, and when you're ignoring the social ills of the day, God says, I have no use for your worship if your life doesn't match up. So for the balance of our time, I want to hit three things. Number one, covenant infractions. Number two, the consequences of those infractions. And three, and the hardest part, what are some of the takeaways? Number one, the first covenant infraction, defiled worship. He says, a man and his father go into the same girl. I don't need to go into that. So that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So they're taking fines from the poor and the press, buying wine with it, and use it again in their cultic services. Religious hypocrisy. Here's a striking example of Amos's irony. Listen to this. I hate, I despise your feast, says the Lord, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Example number two. Sarcasm. Come to Bethel and transgress. That's like saying come to church and sin. To Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. In other words, go on with your religious busyness. That's great. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. You see how this is just irony of what they're really supposed to be doing in their worship? 
O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. There's a sort of a concept in IT security. Whenever you, uh, you, you practice putting a lot of investing in countermeasures, and those countermeasures only provide you a feeling of information, technological security. It's not really secure, but it gives you the feeling it is because you've put a lot of boxes in place or whatnot. And there's a name for that. It's called security theater. And what the Israelites were practicing here was none other than religious theater. But what does the, what does the Lord want instead? He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God could care less about our worship if we're neglecting the marginalized in our society, in our sphere of influence. So not only were they covered in fractions of a religious and ceremonial and cultic nature, they entailed ethical and moral wrongdoings. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 is straight-out contempt for the law. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine. You made them break their vow. And you told the prophets not to speak. What's the point of that? Well, the prophets gave us abstract messages or gave the audience abstract messages that were to be understood. The Nazarites gave them lives that showed them that it was possible to live for God. A concrete example. And yet they were being asked to violate their vows and to not prophesy. How sick is that? Social sins. The social sin of slavery for three transgressions of, it and it of Israel and for four. I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Luxurious complacency. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calneh and see, and from there go to Hamath, the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you, put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but they are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Luxurious complacency. Therefore, they shall be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Amos is not after the murderers and adulterers. He's after social situations. He's after injustice. He's after complacency. He's after apathy. I have a late friend, Mike Simpson, who was a lifelong friend of mine. 
died back in the 90s, a great preacher, a young man. He died in his 30s of stomach cancer. And one day he was preaching in high school chapel. And he asked these teenagers, he said, look, what do you think is the greatest problem that you as a group of teens are dealing with? One teenager raised his hand and stood up in chapel and he said this to Mike. I don't know. I don't care. Mike said, you're right. You don't know and you don't care. And that's exactly what Amos is saying. Finally, the last moral and ethical violation, a theme that figures very prominently, perhaps the most prominent theme in this entire book, and that is the theme of justice. The concept of justice is pervasive in the Old Testament. Justice is one of the four cardinal virtues discussed by the ancient Greeks. Philosophers like Plato and Aristotle in collocation with fortitude, prudence, and temperance. In the New Testament, for example, the Apostle Paul deploys the ancient term dikaiosune for righteousness, the same word used by the Greeks, but Paul had a slightly different meaning and used it in soteriological com- context. So I'm not saying Plato, it meant this, Aristotle, it meant this, therefore it meant this in the New Testament. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the concept of justice looms large in both Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. In my rereading of Amos numerous times in preparation for this sermon, it occurred to me just how important justice, even social justice, is to the church, to our faith, to the covenant community. But what about justice? What does it look like? Well, instead of trampling the heads of the poor, it means helping them. Instead of oppressing them, it means lifting them up. Listen to the Gospel of Luke. Read the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is a gospel to oppress people. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, Jesus said, as He stood up and read from the scroll in the temple. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Luke 6 and 20, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Luke 14, 13, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And Proverbs says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. You know, the situation with justice today is similar to a situation that those of us who follow such things happened back in the late 19th and early 20th century with the evangelical church. Higher criticism, theological liberals who gave no credence to any sort of supernaturalism to the Bible, who simply wanted to get rid of the dead hand of tradition, the dead hand of the the scriptures. They were just old things that, you know, no reasonable person could believe anymore. But hey, there must be some utilitarian use for this. So social gospel will emphasize love. We'll emphasize social justice. We'll emphasize the doing of good works. None of this sort of vicarious atonement or sacrifice for sins or a bloody theology. And guess what evangelicals did? They knee-jerked to the other side of the pendulum and totally forgot a Bible 
concept of love. And we have done the same thing with justice. Because of the cultural, uh, I guess, expression, because of all the emphasis in the news of those who are more radical than others and this emphasis on social justice, what do we do? We run the other way. I'm not saying we ascension. I'm saying the church in general has a tendency to do this. This is the story of church history. Pendulum swing to the left, pendulum swing to the, to the right. And what we have to have is the normulating norm of truth, and that's the Bible. And that's exactly why I'm preaching this this morning. We have to have this. So, how should we think about social justice? Should we have anything to say about it? How do we address the social ills? What are we going to do about it? Are we going to just think and talk about it? We're good at that. We're great at thinking and talking. The social justice warriors of our day have done exactly what Amos said. They have turned justice into wormwood and righteousness into dirt. And we've let them. That's on us. What are the consequences of covenant infractions? Turn to Amos chapter 4. And I know it's getting long. This is my last shot at you probably forever, so bear with me. You should never let a southern boy preach the last inning before pastor comes back. Now, I want you to see if you can connect the dots here of what Ed read to us. Amos chapter 4 and verse 6. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. Famine, starvation. Verse 7. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months of the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another. One field would have rain and the other field on which it did not rain would wither. Crop failure. Right out, straight out of what Ed read. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence, exactly what Ed read. After the manner of Egypt, I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you didn't return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as brands plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. You didn't turn. You didn't turn because the covenant infractions were enforced. I told you what was going to happen in the Bible. You didn't listen to it. There's only one thing left to do, Israel. Church, prepare to meet your God. Well, we pray it a lot, don't we? Even so, Lord Jesus, come, and yes. But do we really want to meet him? Are we really ready for that? It's not ultimately up to us, but we get to cooperate as Bob taught us with the spiritual gifts. Yes, God is going to put all injustices to the right someday, but we are to be using our gifts and cooperate with him to facilitate that process. That's part of our responsibility. 
as bearers of the image of God. There was lack of bread, withholding of rain, blight and mildew, locusts devoured figs and olives, there was pestilence, there was sword, there was overthrowing, and that they did not repent, just like the Pentateuch promised. So what's at stake here with these covenant infractions? Is it merely a violation of religious abstractions of thou shalt not and thou shalt, or is there more to it? Although egregious sexual sins are mentioned in chapter 2 and verse 7, of profaning of God's name, of making God's name common, for Amos, covenant infractions in the social order trivialized God. It is the ultimate banality and profanity to relegate the ultimate being in the universe, the creator and covenant maker, to the realm of the common. And to ignore the social plights of our day as God's standard bearers, as being members of his covenant, profane his name. Pure and simple. That's the message of Amos. It's every bit as egregious as the big sins on one side of the tablet. Ancient Near Eastern gods were often represented by kings and their rulers. The Pharaoh, for example. They kind of represented those deities like the statue of Abraham Lincoln represented Abraham Lincoln, the president. Not so with God. Not so with our God. We represent him. We are his image bearers. And when Israel violated those covenant requirements... They were marring further the image of God and blurring the antithesis, hear me, blurring the antithesis between the common and the holy, between ultimate justice and righteousness and injustice and unrighteousness. They were blurring that antithesis. And when we sit back and let those who have absolutely no basis for social justice, they haven't even read Rawls. They have no idea what they're talking about. It's irrationality. It's one thing. It's power. It's a struggle for power. And we have let them take a good and godly biblical word and concept, justice and righteousness, and make a flipping mess out of it. What are some takeaways? What are some takeaways? And I'm done. Number one, you don't have to be a formally trained scholar with a Bible or seminary degree to serve God. That's number one. Christopher B. Stubblefield, a two-time Purple Heart winner, decorated Korean War veteran and founder of Stubbs Barbecue Sauce, used to say this, I'm just a cook, a simple cook, and my life is in these bottles. Amos would say, ladies and gentlemen, I am just a simple shepherd boy and farmer, and my life is committed to the Lord. Number two, Amos is extraordinarily relevant for the church and America's social pathologies. We do have a basis for righteousness. We do have a basis for justice. We do have what they need, and that's the gospel. And I don't have all the answers 
of how to address that. We have answers for the heroin addiction problem in Seattle, Washington, and the homelessness. What are we doing about it? It's not enough. It's not enough to not oppress. It's not enough to not extort. It's not enough to not serve up injustice. We have to take action. Let me give you a great example. Ava and Jessica Bartlett in their crayon drive. Children. That's a social good cause for people who probably don't know the Lord. You know, I think about Mahatma Gandhi, I think about Martin Luther King, I think about Mother Teresa. I used to be really critical of those people. Sure, their worldviews were probably not in line with ours, and their theology certainly wasn't like ours. But at least by God's common grace, they got this part right. That might be the illogical outworkings of their worldview and their theology, but they got some things right. And we can't just write off those examples, folks, simply because it was the illogical outworkings of their worldview and more consistent with ours. But what have we done? Amos says, people will stagger from sea to sea and roam from north to east, seeking the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. They are staggering from a famine of the hearing of the word of God. And when I look at these people clamoring on TV for equality and justice for which there is no standard and no basis, and it's nothing but shrill irrationality, look at them, folks, with compassion and not with contempt and say, look, they are stammering in their irrationality and in their blathering idiocy of what true justice really is because they are starved for truth. I don't know exactly what all this looks like. Here's what I do know. I, Jeff Capshaw, have been thoroughly worked over with this. I can no longer be happy playing church at ease in Zion. We can't keep killing ourselves for more toys and things that we do not need. We can't keep driving for social status or corporate status or longing for leisure Whatever else, whatever other lies we tell ourselves to ignore things that really, really matter. Finally, final takeaway. And this goes back to what I said about appreciating our pastor. You look throughout the entire history of Israel, the entire history of all the former prophets and the writing and the latter prophets, and guess what, folks? They saw very little practical results. This is a hard work. And our pastor comes here week in, week out, faithfully proclaiming God's word. And guess what? He will probably see exactly what they did. Little practical results. Let's show him we appreciate him. Let's pray for him. And let's obey what he asks us to do from the Bible. Right? Amen? Amen. Thank you. A few nights ago, Cindy and I were speaking to Mother Teresa. We watched the letters, the story of her work among the poor in India, and I actually found a transcript of her speech that she gave when she received the Nobel Peace Prize. 
She offered uh, the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, his peace prayer. And I think that, uh, church, rather than being at ease in Zion, if we truly desire that justice roll on like a river in our homes, in our communities, our city, which is in so desperate need, I think we can agree with this prayer. I think we, too, can seek the Lord and live that we too can establish justice, that we too can hate evil and really do some good in the name of Christ with the gospel for God's glory. Let's pray together. Lord, make me a channel of your peace that where there is hatred, I may bring love. That where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. That where there is discord, I may bring harmony that where there is error, I may be, bring truth. That where there is doubt, I may bring faith. That where there is despair, I may bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. That where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by forgetting self that one finds oneself. It is by forgiving that one is forgiven. It is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen.